You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Garden song. It's time for the Davis Garden Show, and this is Don Shore. And that was Victor on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. Don, do I get to say that from now on? Through February. I'm All sorry. Right. I'm sorry to say we're at about 60% of average rainfall and oh. snowpack, but uh, we are going up to a high today of 65 degrees, which I'm guessing is actually low since it hit 70 for the last couple of days here in the Sacramento Valley. We had a frost on our property this morning. Just what? want to throw that out there as a reminder <laughs> that it is actually February. What's the date today? The 13th, 13th 2020. Yeah. And we did have a light frost. I always make a point of going out and taking a picture when we get a frost, the earliest and the latest. So I'll keep doing that as long as necessary. And maybe post a lovely picture of the sparkling ice on the leaves above the place where the tomato plants will be in my garden center soon, but not that soon. Let me tell you how many times we've been talking about tomato plants for the last couple of weeks. You mean so, in your in your garden center? Yeah, yeah. in the Redwood Barn. We have people coming in. And well, I, it's I, 70. What, yeah. yeah, it was 70. It was sunny. The soil's warm. I mean, the, we got our field mowed. Last year, I couldn't get my farm mowed until almost Memorial Day weekend. Remember where we Why? were last year in February? It rained oh. and rained and rained, and then it rained in April, and it rained in May, and they finally mowed it when the mustard was up to my chin and the oats were up to my chest and uh, we had to go out there and move them all out of the way to try and plant our summer vegetables. We were mowing yesterday, wow. February 12th. They were mowing the field and getting all the stuff ready for the bloom of the almonds, which has begun here in the Sacramento Valley. If you're planning, if you're a photographer, let me bump these mics up a little bit here. If you're a photographer and you want a picture of your beloved or otherwise in front of some almond trees, you're about a week away mm-hmm. from the peak of bloom of the first two varieties. You can plan a trip over here to the Sacramento Valley, drive in. You really can't miss the almond orchards when they're in full bloom. It's quite lovely. Fluffy and, white trees. And they, uh, the farmers don't really mind if you pull off and walk in a little ways to get some lovely photographs against the bright white blooms of the almond trees. Isn't uh, there an almond festival that happens around this time you of You know, year? there was... 
Hey, if you're out there and you know anything about the date and time and anything about the Cape Valley Almond Festival, send us a note, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. We'll be happy to talk about it. Yeah. Weather coming up is going to be more of the same. Warm. Literally more of the same all the way through February. Yeah. Uh, I do follow a couple of meteorologists on Twitter, Daniel Swain and a couple of others. This ridge, this high-pressure ridge that has been blocking rain now for a month, is locked in. You can see they're getting loads of rain up in the Pacific Northwest. All the storms are going up there. We're getting nothing. There's a little chance of partly sunny. They've even pulled it away from, from even a chance of showers on Sunday night. Now they're just saying partly cloudy. And the extended forecast is just more same. of this more of this same. Now, night temperatures are what matter from the gardening standpoint. Tonight, they say 41. Friday night, 42. Saturday night, 46 because of the cloud cover. Sunday night, 40. Four. Let's see how things go on to. Oh, hey, it's a it's a holiday for a lot of people on Monday. Mm-hmm. President's Day, forty on Monday night, forty on Tuesday night. Days in the mid sixties, nights in the forties. Those mid sixties are a few degrees above average for this time of year, and the soil temperature is warming faster than usual. So you know, if you want to plant a tomato plant, go for it. What the heck? Who am I to stop you? Uh, you <laughs> no, won't find no, them. On, be nice. <laughs> you won't find them on the shelf at my store, but you know what? They're out there. And I'll tell you why they're out there. Um, Let's not go too far off the, the track here, but they're out there because people buy them early and the garden centers bring them in early and the garden centers bring them in early because the people buy them early and the people buy them because they see them in garden centers. It's an endless cycle. And uh, the only way to break that is to hold off on buying them until it's really closer to time to plant them. It's, it's better to, to buy them later when it's closer rather than buying them and keeping them on your front porch. But if you want to do that, that's fine. I mean, you can. I won't argue. If, and if there's a particular variety that you yeah. don't think you'll ever see again, that makes sense. But if you're planting <laughs> c- Celebrity or Ace yeah, or any of the common ones, just, you know, hey, wait till you're actually going to plant them. And or don't do it in February. If you buy early... Because you saw them at a garden center or a hardware chain, uh, you probably want to transplant that into a larger pot, like a gallon can with a nice, rich soil. I do this anyway when I'm—I you know, don't plant uh, as soon as I'm ready to get the plants, and I—they're I, growing. I move them into bigger and bigger pots. Uh, I get them two, three feet tall before they go in the ground, and that's great. That's a great way to go. Get the plants off to a nice start. So mm-hmm. if you see them and you couldn't resist them and you bought them, try don't try and keep them in those little packs. That's not going to work very well. Get them transplanted to something bigger. Uh, let's see what they're talking about in terms of uh, the long-range forecast here, just to give you the more of the same extended discussion. <laughs> Upper trough will be positioned east of the region on Monday. You'll, we will get some north winds first of all. A couple of their first couple days of next week, the north winds have been kind of annoying, drying things out. Um, little chance of some showers way up north, nothing close to us. Then back to the dry conditions next week, winds off and on. Uh, looks like nothing really coming over California probably through the rest of February, which would be a zero rainfall February. That's not common for us. Nope, not common. That's usually not common. usually it's our highest rainfall yeah. month. Um, I did note down some of the, uh, oh, chilling hours. People have been wondering about that. For fruit trees, mm-hmm. we're at 700 right now. That's we good. average We average 800, 850 here. We're probably going to come in this year if it tracks along like other years where we are we have been about at this point mid-February. We've only got a couple more weeks in the official designated chilling hours period. We'll probably end up with about 800 chilling hours, which should be mm-hmm. fine for anything you're growing in this area unless you're trying to grow some weird heirloom apples or something like that. 
Events. Events. Uh, Tree Davis has a always has stuff happening. You, mm-hmm. If you want to get out on a Saturday morning and do something, there's one thing you might want to do is check treedavis.org. Pretty good chance you could go out and plant a tree with them. The next opportunity, I believe, is a community canopy. That's a program they have underway, planting trees all over Davis. Tree planting number five will be on Saturday the 29th. Yes, there are 29 days in February this year. Saturday the 29th from 9 a.m. to noon, you will meet at the Veterans Memorial. You know where that is on... 14th Street. 14th Street, thank you. Yes, 203 East 14th Street. And then they'll break up into smaller groups. Uh, You will need some transportation, so someone should have a car that you come with because you'll be going to different planting sites, and Oreo should carpool with a team leader or something. Anyway, they need as many people as they can get to help dig holes and plant trees. Meet at the Veterans Memorial at 9 a.m. They'll be going all around the city and planting trees. This is tree planting number five. We'll be continuing, and actually, given the grant funding, they'll continue into next year. They'll be doing this for quite a while. So if you're, if you're looking for planting activities, treedavis.org. And if you're looking for a place to send money, treedavis.org. That's all good. <laughs> um, it's this weekend. You know, tomorrow is Valentine's Day, 14th of February. And this weekend is the Great Backyard Bird Count. Now, you know, well, I, I in addition was... to gardening, I like birds. I thought that was earlier in the year. Uh, no, you're talking about the Christmas count. Yeah. The Christmas count happens in the middle of December, usually, <laughs> yeah. sometime around there. And uh, this, though, is the Great Backyard Bird Count. It's sponsored by Cornell University and the scientists there. And they ask the everybody in the country anyone. to just, anyone, everyone, uh, to go out and look at what birds you have in a particular location. And you can spend like 15 minutes in your backyard or oh. what you can go to a local park. There are some events or if you want to help with a, a, a group thing, like North Davis Ponds is having a group uh, count over there. And what it is, is you count how many of each species that you see. So if I see a scrub jay, I look around and say, okay, I see three scrub jays here at the same time. And then we walk in around, and then we come back around again to the towards the parking lot, and I see uh, two scrub jays. Well, I don't get to put five. This is probably the same ones. You know. How do you know? You don't know, so yeah. you have to you have to be conservative. Okay. Anyway, it's a it's a great fun. It's it's a wonderful thing to do with your kids. I was going to say it sounds and like a good thing to have a second person with you to, to be the scribe oh, as you're yes, doing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's fun in groups because right. you can see it. Anyway, a great backyard bird count. If you go to Cornell University, uh, you can find the information there. You or can. Uh, no, it's this is Cornell. Cornell. This okay. is this is this is the um, Cornell. Uh, up, uh, what's it called? Ornithology. Yes, the orn- study of birds. The lab of ornithology. Anyway, they um, they have all the information, and then when you're done, you can submit your information so that it will help the scientists figure out how things are mm-hmm. going and things like that. If it's enough people wonderful. participate, they get some useful they, data. They get a lot of participants, yeah, yeah. and it's growing. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It is a holiday weekend, so you've got lots of time. And you don't have to spend a whole, you know, two hours. You can just do it for 15 minutes. You just write down what you see. Write down the birds you see. see. Okay. So speaking of growing... That was a terrible Speaking segue. Speaking of that was a terrible, <laughs> terrible segue. Uh, there's, a, there's a walk that you might want to take in the Arboretum, and you can do it on your own. You can wander down there and look at the spectacular yellow flowers yourself and look at the labels. Or if you want to have someone who knows what they're talking about accompany you and explain it, go to Amazing Acacias, mm-hmm. February 29th. 
2 o'clock to 3.30. So you can do that tree planting with Tree Davis in the morning, go get some lunch, then head over to Amazing Acacias at the Eric E. Kahn Acacia Grove Mm -hmm. in the Arboretum. It's mid well, not midpoint, it's towards the west end, and it's easy mm-hmm. to find a map online. Their spectacular late winter display right now, when they're beginning to really come into their peak of bloom, acacias are early blooming trees in this area. And they'll have a guided tour featuring the over 50 different acacia species from around the world. Mm-hmm. This event is free, as these all are. You'll be meeting at the Poudre Creek Lodge, for those of you locally who know where that is. If you and don't, there's parking there. Yeah, nearby. If you don't know that, uh, go to Arboretum. UCDavis.edu to get the traffic figured out because it's changed since the last time we were in Davis. There's a location map shows you where the nearby parking is. That's 2 o'clock to 3.30 p.m. February 29th of this year. Amazing acacias. And people ask me after this event, how come nurseries don't sell acacias? Well, it, well okay, they, so the way the way that happened, though, is that because Eric Kahn, who's, who was a friend of ours, and mm-hmm. he passed on yep. recently, um, he was instrumental in going and finding all these different mm-hmm. acacia species, which are not local to California. Nope, no, na- no native species of acacia, but they are very well adapted here. They mm-hmm. take very well to this Mediterranean rainfall, or what we call the Mediterranean rainfall climate, wet, cool winters, dry, hot summers. Acacias generally love that. They're not the best backyard trees. Mm -hmm. They grow fast and they kind of fall apart. So they're good for an informal planting. I'm about to put a couple of the acacia baleana in on my property where I have an area that's kind of overgrown uh, where the foxes nest and they're happy about the nearby grevilleas. I figure I'll add some acacias there. They'll appreciate Mm -hmm. the cover and the density. They're not the most tidy, orderly little plants for the backyard, but they're a fascinating group. Some of them have very strange foliage. Uh, And mostly yellow flowers. As far as I know, all of them. I can't think of any, there, there might be some that aren't, but they're little puffball yellow flowers. And for those of you who are from Italy, uh, I believe there you actually call them mimosas because I went through this circular discussion with a customer who was Italian and didn't speak English very well. We do this a lot trying to figure out what the plant was. She says it's it, part of a festival in Italy very early. In Italy's climate, very similar to here. Mm-hmm. Uh, very early, and she's talking about these blooms and little yellow puffballs, and I finally said acacia, and I showed her a picture. Yes, yes, that is it. We call it mimosa. Well, that's a little confusing because mimosa is a common name that we apply to something entirely different, the silk tree. Which has and, little pink puffballs. And the actual mimosa with that botanical name is the little sensitive plant, which mm-hmm. is a fun little thing to grow. They are all in the same family. They all have little puffballs, no question. But uh, acacias are apparently, I learned from her, called mimosa in Italy. Uh, you can admire they're from, them. They're from Africa, aren't they? They're all over. They're actually, uh, and some of them are horribly invasive weeds in some areas. There's an acacia yeah. that's become a, a terrible thicket weed in Hawaii, for example. Mm-hmm. So this is not a plant you want to be planting casually, but the ones we have here are quite amazing. So that's at the Eric E. Kahn Acacia Grove, the westish end of the Arboretum. Great, great time right now to walk around the Arboretum. I highly recommend it. Which yeah. brings us to the first question, sort of a pickup from last week and something we do fairly regularly at this time of year. What's that tree that's in bloom? What's that tree that's in bloom right well, now? Well, could it be a red bud? Nope, too early They're for red too buds. Too early for red buds. So we ask first question. It, okay. We ask what it, color? It, it, what color uh, are the flowers? What color are the flowers? Okay. And if they say white, we say almonds. Very likely almonds. It could be. 
the so-called evergreen pear, the Pyrus kawakami. That's mm-hmm. been blooming for a month. That's uh, yeah, not as yeah. many of those around town, but there are still some of them. This isn't the Bradford pear. It's the other species, Pyrus kawakami, that starts blooming here as early as December. In a what if it's winter. pink? If it's pink, there is one. If you walk into my nursery right now, right in the front, right behind our little Valentine's display, you'll see a tree with a little nodding bell-shaped flower that's going to throw you off because that's not characteristic of the, the group that are hot pink. I mean, cerise pink. And I was introduced to this plant several years ago by a customer who was looking for it who said there was one in El Macero that was in full bloom with the almonds every year. And so with a whole bunch of back and forth with my wholesale suppliers and the bare root growers, one of them finally said, oh, you mean that first blooming flowering cherry? I said, okay, could be a flowering cherry. Didn't look like nodding bell-shaped flowers. said, yeah, it's Prunus campanulata. Campanulata means the flowers are bell-shaped like a campanula, uh-huh. and it's called the Taiwan cherry. Is it a weeping cherry? It's, it, no, but its flowers nod. And okay. so the, the plant itself has the classic kind of arching, all semi-umbrella-like habit of a, of a lot of the flowering cherries. But it blooms way ahead of all the others. It's blooming mm. with the almonds. And if you, you should stop by and take a look I at should. it. I should. I take it's, a picture of it's it. It's definitely the first of the flowering cherries to bloom. Uh, we usually associate them more with March uh, mm-hmm. March bloom. And one of them goes all the way into April. But it's one of the very first of the trees to bloom in this area with the almonds. So that's, do, that's do, quite early. Apricots also start to bloom early. Do we have a pink almond? There is one that exists. It's the dwarf, Garden Prince. Okay. It's a very cool so backyard almond tree. Any of you listening in areas where almonds aren't really regularly grown, but you get enough winter chilling for them. So there's lots of parts of the southeast, uh, southeastern U.S. where you could probably do this, as well as up into, say, Willamette Valley of Oregon. You can grow this one as a backyard almond that will set fruit on its own. It doesn't require a pollinizer, as the others do. It's called Garden Prince. It's a miniature almond, only grows to about 10 feet, has very pretty light pink blossoms mm. instead of the white blossoms that are characteristic of all the others. So that must be what my neighbor has in their yard. Because I've, I've seen one pink-flowered... Mm-hmm. In, in, you know, all of these stone fruits, from a distance, they're all pretty much the same. They are, they're all closely related. I mean, these are all in the rose family. We could actually just uh, abbreviate this uh, uh, particular ongoing sequence we do in the late winter. Which of the rose family trees are blooming now? Uh, there will mm-hmm. be one exception when we get to the magnolias in a couple of weeks, but everything else are cherries, mm-hmm. pears, crab apples, plums. The flowering plums have also just opened. That's okay, the, so that's the other yeah, one. The flowering now, plums. The, the flowering plums, do they get their flowers before they get their leaves? Is the, that, are they the one, one of those? That is, the one that is usually called flowering plum, uh-huh. which has double soft pink flowers, mm-hmm. blooms before the leaves come out. Okay, that's and then Curtis. the leaves are kind of purplish? When they emerge, they're reddish-purple like a lot of the and other plums, green. and then they turn to green. Okay. As opposed to the red leaf or purple leaf plums, which are a little bit later and bloom just as the leaves are emerging, and those are even more red. So it's a little And confusing. they stay red. They stay red if they're in enough sun. Uh, more importantly, they may set fruit. And the other one, the one we first discussed, the so-called flowering plum with the double pink flowers does not set fruit. Okay. So that's an important thing to think about when you're planting these small flowering trees. That's true, especially crab apples. Let's get back to birds for a minute here. The circled question there. What do you do about white-crowned sparrows? Well, (laughs) I I feed them, Uh and I enjoy them, and I look at them. Ask the lady who was planting her peas for the third time. What do you do about white-crowned sparrows? So here's here's the thing about (laughs) white-crowned sparrows. We've been through this before, but we might as well do it once more. They do it every every year. Um, (laughs) White-crowned sparrows are... They want to be close to cover. Yes. So if you have a garden area and on one side there's some bushes, 
don't plant your peas next to the bushes. Yep. Plant them on the other side of the garden so there's like at least 20 feet away. And, and they probably won't get that far because they're shy birds. They're, <laughs> they're worried about cats. I mean, they're not shy, shy as birds. in if they'll run away if people walk by. They don't care about that. But they want to stay next to the bushes. Yes. So. so that also goes for your lettuce. Anything that's anything that's small and and green. They they like certain plants. My experience with them has been the damage they do is highly particular, all at once in a particular area, and they'll completely leave alone the thing next to it. But they've whatever one of them figured out that this lettuce is edible and told all its brothers and cousins, and they all arrive and they decimate them. She's replanted her peas three times. She was just amused by it because she Mm -hmm. feeds birds and she has bird baths out and she's thought well this is mm-hmm. just the the slight so, downside of uh, feeding so, birds is you happen to get the white crowned sparrows it, it, to be so that little flock is going to come back to your yard sure every is. year mm-hmm. it, they they are t- they are regional and when they come on vacation they like to hang out at the same spot which is your backyard so if you want to get your peas or beans or whatever with a better start one way to protect them when they're tiny and the sparrows like the tiny things. Yeah. They, they, you know, if it gets up to be six inches, they're going to ignore it. But um, so you can take oh milk cartons. You know those plastic milk cartons. Cut the bottom off and stick it over top the the little plant so that they can't actually get to it. You could do arches, arched bamboo, and make a row cover over the whole row of things that's if that a, works for you. That's the simplest: is to um, put a floating row cover, which is sometimes sold as seedling blanket. Mm-hmm. Uh, commercial growers use it for a variety of purposes, and you can. It may seem expensive at first, but you can reuse it for years. Yeah. And you just cover over. The reason that one works particularly well is it does allow light through. Right. So it makes sort of a little greenhouse effect, but not to the point of excluding light or getting too hot. Right. And you do that until they're. Uh, my experience is six to twelve inches up. They'll leave them alone at that right. point. Something and by that point, they're probably going away anyway, because these are April, winter only birds. They leave in April. For beginning of April. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. That would work. Let's go to the front page of that, and we'll let's go to our questions. Okay. With our new water here, can we grow hydrangeas? Well, we've always been able to grow hydrangeas, but they've been a little tricky. Uh, can we water, get them to turn blue? Yeah, getting them to turn blue is is downright nearly impossible in Davis, Dixon, Woodland area. Why? Because our water is alkaline. And we do have new water. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is for Davis and Woodland listeners, but those of you in areas with variable water or soil pH, this may apply in your case as well. You'll almost never see a true blue hydrangea around here. Uh, even if you planted one that was sold to you, was blue when you bought it or when mm-hmm. it was given to you as a florist crop, you put it in the ground and you start watering it. And they, they're not too hard to grow here. They're, that's a separate discussion. But keeping them blue is challenging because even though we now get about 90% or so of our water from the Sacramento River, nice, clean, treated water from the Sacramento River, pH neutral because it's right out of the river, they're keeping the pH high. They're adding sodium hydroxide at the water treatment plant to keep the pH what it was before. And every time I say this when I'm giving talks, everybody groans like, what are we paying for all this for? And the reason is very simple. They don't want lower pH water going through pipes that have always had the higher pH water and suddenly causing stuff to come out into your water. We don't want to be flint. Well, it wouldn't be that bad. It wouldn't be that bad. It wouldn't wouldn't be a problem in terms of health at all. But as the water, the public works guy said to me, 
one thing people really don't like is seeing stuff in their water, no yep. matter what it is. Except so, ice cubes. So they're putting, keeping it at 8.1, just like it was before. Biggest difference is the it, and you, can get, you can get a report from the city as to what the water is now, and you can go back and look at what it used to be. Significantly less mineral content, even with 10% or so of the water still coming out of wells at times, though it's much easier to mitigate that pH. Let's see, you're growing blueberries, you're growing azaleas, camellias, you turn in some sulfur, you mulch them with compost, and they seem to be doing much better. And a lot of plants that used to show late season effects from the hard water and the high mineral content aren't showing that now. So people have always done okay with hydrangeas, but they often had some like late summer chlorosis and deficiencies apparent. Uh, that's, that part is no longer a problem. So the only people that I have ever known in Davis who grow hydrangeas and, and make them blue and are happy with all that sort of stuff work in Sacramento, and they take <laughs> jugs, literally, they take jugs, and they get water from their Sacramento office and bring them home, and that is what they water their hydrangeas in. They had them in a, a, a half barrel, and they made them blue by doing the stuff you do, but they first had to use Sacramento water. So the, so. Way, that, the way that traditionally hydrangeas are turned blue, first of all, you have to start with a variety that will do that because they won't all do that. Some of them are red, and that's what you get. But some of them can turn blue, and it's a complicated pigment change in the plant that's fascinating to those of you who are interested in plant physiology and chemistry. I suggest you look it up and read all about it. But it's aluminum in the soil taken into the plant that is necessary for it to turn blue. And you can achieve this yourself by applying aluminum, aluminum. sulfate, which ah. will also affect the pH. But bear in mind that aluminum is toxic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you don't want to do this in a bed and it stays. It's an element. It doesn't break down into anything. It's an element. So elements don't break down. Copper, aluminum, things like that. Once you put them in the soil, they're metabolized into the plant, but then they're still there in the soil. So you don't want to do this where you're ever going to grow food crops because it's not good for us. Most plants are harmed by aluminum mm -hmm. in large quantities. Hydrangeas are a little unique in that they take it up. They actually accumulate aluminum, and that's part of the internal chemistry that causes the pigment, the red pigment, to shift pathways and express itself as blue in the flower. So they have to have aluminum in the soil. So if you take that hydrangea and you stick it in a planter with all potting soil that has no aluminum in it, no matter what you do, it won't turn blue. Mm -hmm. You No matter whether you're bringing gallons of water over from right. Sacramento, it won't turn blue unless you provide some aluminum. So we don't really want you putting them in the garden and applying aluminum sulfate to them in a bed that other plants are going to be in because it might be harmful to the other plants mm -hmm. or that you might be growing strawberries or something in because that would not be good for you. Sequester them. Sequester them in containers. Now, yeah. this is the important bottom line here for those of you anywhere that are growing hydrangeas. The blue cultivars are most vibrant in strongly acid soils. It's really hard to get pH neutral water alkaline down to strongly acid. Mm -hmm. That would take a lot of sulfur over a long period of time, and even at that, it wouldn't stay that way. So you'd have to be doing it pretty constantly. Pink and white hydrangeas perform great in weakly acid or even weakly alkaline soils. Like so our place. You're better off with pink or white in this area here where we have you know this pH issue with our water. Mm -hmm. The flower color of hydrangeas is most intense in direct sunlight, but in Sacramento Valley, they don't like full afternoon sun. The places I've seen them do best here, they get morning sun, such as on the east-facing wall of a house, which then shades them in the afternoon. If they're in the shade of a high tree, they grow fine and they bloom okay, but they're not as intensely colored. Mm -hmm. If you're growing the white ones, which is, we'll get to this in a minute, 
that's fine. If you're trying to really get these strong colored ones like your grandma grew, that may be more of a challenge here in the valley because they just don't take hot sun. My grandmas were like light pink and then they turned to a light blue. They weren't strong colors at all. When I was up in Oregon, traveling up and down coastal Oregon, I noticed all the hydrangeas were this vivid, unnatural blue color. Hmm. And I have to assume that in those areas they have, they where I was seeing that, I can't remember where it was, they must have had strongly acidic soil. Bear in mind they also have blueberries and huckleberries and all those things Salmon growing, growing mm. wild up there. So we can assume that the pH is probably down in that uh, strongly acid range, which is great for them and not so great for necessarily a lot of other things. Uh, so containers are best if you're going to try and manage this. The other thing that's really important about hydrangeas is they need a lot of water. I mean, they're never, ever drought tolerant. Having said that, we're talking here about the big old, what we call mop head, or what I always just call grandma's hydrangeas. You know, the big ones that are six, eight, ten inches across unbelievable range of colors available in these. Now, you go to a nursery in, I don't know, Connecticut or Oregon, and you're going to see probably 50 varieties ranging from pistachio green to bicolor, just an unbelievable color range. But they're all those big mop head things. They're all mop head types. Here, I only uh, honestly suggest your best bet is going to be to plant something like the oak leaf hydrangea. hydrangea. And that does beautifully in the shade. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big, elegant plant, and the foliage yeah. is cool. And the foliage doesn't burn if it goes a little dry. If it's, you know, just normal watering is fine with the oak leaf hydrangea. Uh-huh. If you don't want it to get so big, you can head it back and it stays nice and bushy. There's a dwarf type. The flowers are more elongated, very elegant looking. They actually fade in an attractive manner. They turn a kind of an interesting buff color as they fade, and people mm-hmm. like that look. Mm-hmm. And so they're just like a normal garden shrub. You don't have to worry about prune it. Don't, whatever you want. I like it's, their flowers. Yeah. I think they're very pretty. They're just not the big old balls of flowers that the regular hydrangeas are. And the other group are the PG hydrangeas. Hydrangea. PG is in pretty good? <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. PG as in P-E-E space G-E-E. Oh. Um, hydrangea paniculata. And they're a little more water requiring, but also that kind of loose, more informal habit. Great shrub and more shade is okay. A little more sun is fine and not fussy about all this stuff. So it's the ones that, you know, it's, hydrangeas are a florist crop. There's something that's grown for sale around Easter. People sell a lot of them in pots in bloom and someone may give you one. Well, that's grandma's mop head hydrangea. Do as you wish with it, but be aware that if you're living anywhere in the Sacramento Valley or anywhere in the Central Valley for that matter, and most parts of the Bay Area or Southern California that I can think of, it's likely to turn kind of pink. And the best way, you know, the best you'll get with all that stuff is a sort of a purplish color. It's not mm-hmm. likely to turn that true blue that you folks back east can achieve much more readily. How big does a mop head hydrangea get? Well, that's the good news. There's been the breeding trend of hydrangeas in the last two generations has been for smaller plants. Mm-hmm. So there's some that only get three feet or so, as uh-huh. opposed to the old ones that were like six feet, and ones that are what we love to call remontant. That's a British term. Remontant. Remontant sounds very official. It just means re-blooming. Oh. They bloom on new wood, last year's growth, but these new ones also bloom on new growth. And so the Endless Summer series, the City Line series, there's an everlasting, uh, these are just trademark names of, of several varieties in one group that you'll see in a lot of garden centers, which only get three feet or so. Mm-hmm. And they bloom early and then they keep blooming. In fact, we had a couple in stock of the nursery that were still blooming in December. Mm-hmm. I mean, the plant was trying to go dormant and the flowers were still on. They're still opening. It was looking <laughs> a little bit absurd. But that means that anybody anywhere, even those of you in colder climates, which would have damaged, I mean, like way colder climates, which would have damaged the buds on the older types of hydrangeas can probably grow these. Hmm. I, we don't get into this issue, but I do see conversations back and forth between nursery owners and USDA zones five, six, seven, you know, where they 
They may be really cold, cold. cold enough to damage the buds that were developing and going through the winter. Well, these ones will put out new ones and bloom anyway. So they mm-hmm. have that advantage and they stay much more compact. Yeah, okay. If you're listening to our shows from about 2005, 2006, which some of you, I guess, do now and then, you might find old discussions about how to prune hydrangeas. And part of that was the complexity of it was because of the the way they bloomed. If your gardener came through and pruned the roses, went right along and pruned the hydrangeas, you wouldn't get any flowers. Because they'd be pruning off the wood from the previous year that would have to be the wood that... Okay. So now now, now, they'll still bloom. It'd be better if he or she didn't do that, but they'll still bloom at least on the new growth. So that was part of what they were trying to do. If you ever grew hydrangeas in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they're big floppy plants, big sprawling Mm -hmm. things. So you'd be trying to shorten them up, but trying to figure out when to do that was challenging. Much easier nowadays. Okay. So um, here's a question. Sure. Uh, the orange tree, I, this is this is the customer talking to Don. The orange tree I planted isn't growing. I brought a little of the soil so you can look at it. I was wondering if there's something wrong with the soil. And he brought in a little sample. I dug a nice hole and put it in there. It seemed to me that when I dug it up to move it, there was too much organic matter in the soil and not enough mineral. I know I enriched the soil. It just never did anything. Is there something wrong with that site, with that place, so that I can't plant another a tree there. I looked at the roots. It seemed that they're arrested in the state they were in. I like that phrase. They're arrested in the state that they were in. Yeah. There's a loop of irrigation that gets to it, and I want to plant a fig tree in the same spot. I so he dug, the, up, he dug up this orange tree and moved it. Yes. Okay. First of all, we, what we learned partly into the discussion was this was four years in the ground. It had never grown. Um, that's Sometimes, That's a lot. Sometimes we feel like we should have asked certain basic questions, you know, 10 questions back, like, oh, how long have we had this plan? Uh, I saw the, I know we enriched the soil. And that's a big red flag. Mm-hmm. And the uh, thought there was too much organic matter in the soil. That's a big red flag. Uh, this is the process that you used to get recommended at, at garden centers 40 years ago, 50 years ago. We know you shouldn't do this now, but I've heard... It said that at some places they still suggest this. Is this where you're you're, you're building a pot in, yeah, in the ground and and the and the roots can't get past yeah, the, and the pot? The roots never established, so he essentially created a bathtub effect, mm-hmm. and um, and the roots never got out past the the fancy soil that was put in. Now I'm told that at one place, which I will not mention, but it was a place that sells plants, and it is in the Sacramento Valley, a staff person was telling people to dig a hole, fill the hole, throw away that soil because the soil here is quote so bad end quote. I'll just, I'll just let that pass. And fill it with potting soil and plant it in that good potting soil because you know that plants do well in potting soil. And uh, um, so, That's basically a surefire method of, of stunting or killing a tree. Yeah, yeah. the roots will not extend out past that, and you'll end up with saturated zones. You've got a bathtub effect. And so, first of all, no, our soil in this area is not all that bad. It's actually good agricultural class soil. One, class one, one class two, depending on where you are. There are a couple parts of town. If you're listening to us in Natomas, for example, I, I'm sorry for you know your gardening situation there. You probably should use raised planters. But for the most part, it's not that bad. And we do know that amending the soil, or even worse, digging a hole and filling it with something else is a recipe for failure. Mm-hmm. So then the question was, well, what about the fig tree he wants to put in? Well, if you go ahead, it's been four years, if you go ahead and dig and spread out and amend and bring in nearby soil and kind of ameliorate it around, that, yeah. I'm almost sure the fig will be fine. First of all, I'm, I'm almost sure a fig would grow just about anywhere. They are Fig roots virtu- are astonishing. Yeah, they're virtually indestructible and they go out rapidly at the surface level. Look at old fig trees mm-hmm. and you'll see these amazing roots that have gone out well past the canopy of the tree. I'm very unconcerned about his 
fig. But in general, when someone has done this, it's best to try to make it so there's a gradient rather than a sudden uh, interface of different kinds of soil. So mm-hmm. if, if you're trying to correct this kind of situation, the gradient. Now, this, this raised a question from a conversation I had with a customer who's been a longtime customer. We've been open since 1981, and our advice has changed somewhat over the years. And she goes, seems like when I used to come into nurseries, You'd all tell me for things like camellias and azaleas to mix the soil 50-50 with this planting mix. Mm -hmm. And they did fine. So why is that a problem? Uh, Well, yes, they often do fine if you mix in and raise the grade and allow for the settling as the organic material breaks down. You know, lots of people who are doing that for many years. You weren't creating an abrupt phase change Mm -hmm. like I think he was doing. We still don't recommend that anymore. We know that all that heavy mixing is not great for the soil structure for a couple of years. In the long run, yes, everything will correct itself. But um, part of it was the amending rather than just filling. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the main difference. But yeah. yes, we've changed from that. It's a, it's one of those areas where the research people has shown, learn things. Yes, the research yeah. has shown that there's a different way to do it. Okay. okay. Um, also, just for the record, probably he wasn't watering it deeply enough. Well, yeah, yeah. But that's a separate conversation. If you only water the the stuff inside the bathtub, why would a root ever even try to get outside? <laughs> well, it just the bathtub? can't. It can't penetrate. There's usually a saturated zone yeah. there. Okay. Okay. So. Don. So this is a message, uh, email from Dan. Hello. A number of years ago, my apricot tree was severely sunburned after I overpruned it. It survived, but still has quite a bit of dead sunburned wood. At this point, should I create, scrape off the dead wood and paint it or leave it be? Painting would be to protect it from any further sunburn. So if it's dead, the answer is no. That I would probably just leave it be and hope that it's scarring over. Um, if you've got the tree you know, recovered from that issue and you can gradually start pruning out those areas that were killed badly, sunburned, and hopefully they'll be replaced by new healthy growth and fine. But the painting, the purpose of painting is to protect it from sunburn. If it's dead, there's nothing more to be done in that regard. Mm-hmm. But when we paint, we use an interior white latex. It's thinned out with water just to make it easier to apply. That's just to reflect the sun and prevent any damage to the cambium. So what we're trying to prevent is damage, direct damage to the phloem, the xylem, which is the water. The growing parts. The, the, well, it's the, uh, the, the, the phloem is the food conducting part and the xylem is the water conducting part mm-hmm. of the tree. But it's the living part. We, yeah. yeah. Anything under that is dead. So if it's dead, there, if there's not going to be any further sunburn. So don't okay. bother with the painting. We, we do sometimes, so, when I've had to prune a peach, for example, when a branch has come crashing out because I didn't prune it enough or thin it enough, it happens, um, suddenly an interior part of that tree is exposed. It would be a good idea to slap some whitewash paint on that exposed portion and prevent this kind of damage. And you will see that done sometimes even in commercial settings. That's, in my opinion, what makes peaches, nectarines, to a lesser degree plums and apricots, short-lived orchard trees is not usually the diseases that we associate with them, but in fact the damage done by overproduction, exposure of the interior wood to sunburn, Mm -hmm. borers getting in, that's kind of the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. So if you can prevent that, your tree will last longer. And so when people say borers are the problem with the tree, that's, well, it's it's technically true that um, that borers are doing damage, but it's because the tree got sunburned. And so if you can stop the sunburn, you can do that. Hey, we've got a phone call. Let's see who's here. Yes. Hello, hey, caller. Can you hear me? Here. Yes, I can hear you. Hello. Yes, and I have two quickies for you guys. Okay. Um, I am functioning on a theory that 
some plants in pots in the same place with their same variety uh, will uh, a variety planted in the ground that the if everything is properly watered the potted plants will do better you mm. want to challenge me on that grow bigger do better in the sense of being more vigorous or or just staying more alive and lovely the one that what containers run out of aside from water you've got that part is the nutrients the minerals that are necessary to sustain the plant growth and retain the organs and organs include leaves and roots so as long as you provide all of the water and nutritional needs of the plant they can be equal as to better, that would be challenging, but uh, it's well known that you can grow plants with uh, 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 in water, you know, with, that, with hydroponics, for example, provide yeah. everything the plant needs. For food production, it certainly works. Um, it's just a matter of giving all those things the plant needs. As the plant gets more root-bound, that becomes more challenging, figuring out exactly how to feed it to give it what the plant would otherwise be getting by its roots being able to explore further and deeper into new soil that contains the minerals that the plant needs for growth. So overall, I would say it's more a function of how easy it is for you as the gardener to provide the plant what it needs. When I worked in the botanical conservatory on campus, we had trees in pots there that had been in the same pots for more than four decades. Obviously, the roots couldn't explore anymore, but we watered them every day because it was a greenhouse and we were watering every day. And every time we watered, they were getting a weak fertilizer solution. And they did great. They did very, very well. Um, I don't think they would have grown to their, you know, the full potential of a tropical tree or something that they, that they were. But we gave them what they needed to keep them healthy and vigorous. But that was the challenge. Daily watering, frequent feeding uh, made it possible to re- have them reach their potential. Okay, I appreciate those tips very much. And now I'm going to ask you about two plants. What container size would best fit my experiment with a Butylon savitsii? That one's a smallish plant, has been my experience compared to, well, it's intermediate, shall we say, in the world of abutilons. Huge, About hu- four feet. Yeah, huge group of plants. For those of you listening in other areas, they range from little miniatures that only get a foot to some that get 10 feet or more and yeah, and can become quite large. Savitsii is a variegated one. Uh, variegated plants tend to be smaller and more compact and less vigorous than their green leaf to compatriots. And so I would think you could easily keep that in a 12 or 14 inch pot without much difficulty if you're able to give it the water that it needs in the summer. 12 to 14 inch pot. Bigger. And, and bigger would I not like be a problem. It would love it. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, and I think it will do better in the ground where I have those in the ground. Yep. Uh, 12 to 14 inch pot, how does that translate when one is talking about one gallon, two gallons? Somewhere between a five and a seven gallon. Five to seven yeah. gallons. And by mid to late summer, you will be watering that every day. So in my world, where I have lots of plants up and down my driveway, my go-to size ultimately is a, is a half barrel just because I can go two or three days without having to water that, whereas I have many, many other plants that I'm having to water every single day. And I you know could you're, put out there, you're out there gardening, so I know you'll give mm-hmm. it the water that it needs. And you could put more than one of those in a half barrel. Sure. Uh, 
let us stick to the gallons. Okay. <laughs> I get confused. I use a 15-gallon for a bigger woody plant. Um, you know, when I have a small fruit tree that I'm going to keep for a couple of years in a container, I'll go to a 15-gallon. Are you familiar with that size? That would be that would make your life easier. You could put a, a butylon savitsii in a 15-gallon container with a couple little flowers at its base if you wanted to dress it up a little bit. And you could probably go a couple days between waterings. And if you used a nice, high-quality potting soil, you wouldn't have to worry about fertilizing it, certainly for the first full-growing season, and maybe even in well into the second full-growing season. So you'd be providing all those minerals, you'd be providing the water that it needs. It would grow to its full potential, I think, in that. Okay, Don, one more um, plant. Quest- question on that. Is that one of the kinds that hangs, that droops? No, no it's not okay. a grower, yeah. Okay. okay, and the other plant I'm considering is the maidenhair fern. What Oh, they can be shallow rooted. There, I have a container I use that's a 16 inch across, but it's only about 10 or 12 inches deep. It's a it's a a bowl like thing, and they're happily filling that. Uh, they need lots of water. I mean, I would tell you, maidenhair ferns love water, and you shouldn't let them get drought stressed in the summer here. But they don't need the depth. They never get terribly deep rooted. They have short rhizomes that creep outward. And so they'll fill that container uh, as quickly as you let them. So I would say a wider, shallower container would be fine for that. Wider, shallower. Uh, Can you translate that into gallon? Like a 15-gallon, but squat. Or you can put it on the... 15-gallon? Yeah. Or or you can put it on the surface where the abutilon is. Oh, there you go. Because your, your fern is low and your beautiful one's on tall. Surface where yeah, this, yeah. I, I have the design in my head <laughs> and the maidenhair. I was thinking more like a two-gallon. It would do that fine to midsummer. I think you'd find you're watering every single day at that point. It doesn't matter. They're fine if they're root-bound. So that's the key. I have lots of things in pots that should be in bigger pots, and I just have to remember to water them. <laughs> so that's the, that's going to be really the, the limiting factor. So whenever I give talks on container gardening, one of the key points I bring up is the bigger the better for your container, and watering is job one because that's in the hot, dry Sacramento Valley. Daily watering is necessary for containers, especially plants that have gotten root-bound. So I think if you're choosing a pot for that, a five-gallon size would be reasonable. And uh, oh. or uh, something in that size range, just because you would have a little bit of more of a margin of error on that watering. Oh, but, you know, where you, where, you, where you locate it makes a big difference. I mean, well, uh, it's going to be very shady. Yeah, so you'll find that in the shade, here's a, the science of this, is that in the shade, the evapotranspiration rate is as, much, as little as half of what it is out in the sun. So your watering is less crucial. I know shade gardeners who water as little as once a week, not usually their container plants, but they can go a few days between waterings in the shade. Oftentimes they're just washing things off and doing that is almost sufficient unto a watering. Hot, windy day, going out and just rinsing everything off makes a big difference. So your location is going to make a big difference on that one. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Acer. Thanks, Acer. Bye-bye. And one thing I wanted to to keep in mind for those of you who do house plants, if you have one of those really shallow rooted plants like Don's talking about here, uh, if you've got a tall pot and you put water in it, the water is going to hang hang out down at the bottom. If you stick your your moisture meter in and down to the bottom, it'll be wet down there, but the roots are at the top and they aren't getting it. So. 
be aware of shallow-rooted plants. What other shallow-rooted plants, house plants, do we have? I have lots of begonias. Begonias and, and ferns. Begonias. Are... begonias I put into pots that I buy in specially for this purpose. They're in the business we call them uh, bulb pans or azalea pots, which are just regular pots in terms of dimen- of, of width, but shallower in depth. Mm-hmm. And they look better in them, and they just don't need the depth. So, right, yeah. right. And is there a problem if you put them in a deep pot? Can yeah, you the overwater same, the yes, bottom? the same thing you're describing. It can yeah. to rot, so. Okay. Okay. This is a hypothetical discussion, sort of an amalgam of conversations I've had over the last few days. <laughs> and here we go. I've bought some tomato plants. Yes. Can I plant them and protect them from the cold? Sure. We're not going to have a frost now, are we? Yeah. What do I need to do to get these plants to keep them going? Okay, at the top of the hour, we talked about this issue. We just had a frost this morning, but uh, the, the odds of a probability of frost here in the valley declines rapidly after about the middle of February. The latest, I have a picture of one, is the first week of April, which was a weird phenomenon when it happened. More common is, yeah, we get another light frost in early March. If the plant is out in the open, it'll be badly damaged by that. So the simplest thing to do is, as we talked about earlier, put them into a nice black-colored nursery pot in nice, rich soil that you'll find. Every nursery has these now, thanks to the cannabis industry. Rich soil that has added organic fertilizer. Put them in there. Put them in a warm spot that gets sun for at least a portion of the day and let them grow happily in that. That way, if you hear, oh my goodness, we're having a late frost, you know, you'll, you'll have some warning about it. Or you see that they're predicting highs below 40, lows mm-hmm. below 40. You know, we were, the low yesterday was 37, but we had a frost. Okay, frost is 32. That was out in the open. Mm-hmm. But near my house, I'm sure they would have been fine. So they're more tolerant than other summer vegetables. They're more tolerant of cold than peppers and eggplant, for example. They can go down into the upper 30s to low 40s, and the plant will be set back a little bit by it, but it's not that big a deal. They'll plant tomatoes out in the fields here, the canning tomatoes, way before the soil is the temperature we're always telling you to aim for because they're growing, it's a different variety, and they don't care if they're stunted at first. They just get them planted when they can plant them. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it warms up, they start to grow. And sometimes that's as early as late March planting and April the growth is coming on. So I suggest you just transplant them and hold them for a little while. Just like we said earlier, probably not easy to keep them in the little for that long. You'll get really root-bound plants. Okay, the Yolo Basin Foundation was founded in 1990 to help in the establishment of the Yolo Bypass Wildlife Area. I'll bet you've noticed that. Maybe you didn't know that was what you were driving over. The foundation offers environmental education programs for all ages related to wetlands and wildlife. Quick, where is it, Willis? It's underneath the freeway as you go from Davis to Sacramento. (laughs) Can't really miss it there. Uh, They have environmental education programs for all ages related to wetlands and wildlife, including wetlands and flyway tours. Oh, wonderful tours. Bat talks. Yes. And walks. Bat walks. Bat talks and walks. It means you can go out in the middle of the night and watch the bats come out. And nature workshops. For visitor and volunteer information access, yolobasin.org. And at the headquarters building there, which you can see on Child's Road just before you get to the causeway, there is a demonstration ponds where they have been planting California native plants and making the ponds available for wildlife. And it's a wonderful area. And you can, anytime the headquarters is open, at the gates open, you can just go on in and walk around and look at things yourself. Creating and maintaining a loving life may be the greatest art of all. Heart to Heart host Gitan offers tips and inspiration for living a loving life richly and lightly. Check the Davis Enterprise for her guests and weekly topics. Heart to Heart airs live on KDRT on Wednesdays, noon to 1 p.m. For replay times for that and all the other great programming here, visit kdirt.org and click the schedule tab.
And if you have a an event coming up, a free nonprofit event, you can always put in requests for announcements through the Davis Dirt, and then those announcements will also get uh, shared on the air. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, we used to we used to say <laughs> send on. it in, but but you know we're we're doing that. I brought you okay, this thing. Okay, here brought, we go. I brought something in for you to look at. Okay, this came off my orange tree. Okay, so it is, it's orange, yellow orangish colored. It, it looks like a, a sort of a lemon, except it's huge rind, very wrinkly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know those, you know those dolls they make out of desiccated apples? <laughs> yes, it looks That's like what it looks those. like to me. What it the is, heck is it? If you scratch it, you'll smell it. Scratch it it smells like an orange. Smells, and if you get a little closer, you'll smell more like a lemon. It's the rootstock. Of my old orange tree on my property, the Washington Naval Orange that was there when we bought the place. So we think it was planted. We're not sure how old it is, 60, 70 years, something like that. And I let a root sucker grow for a couple of years, which I shouldn't do, but it did. And uh, it started fruiting this year for the first time. This is the rough lemon root stock. Which rough is lemon. Rough lemon. It is a lemon. It's usable. It's very tart, but it's usable. It's not bitter like a lot of the root stocks mm-hmm. are. And uh, sometimes if, you've, if we've had a freeze here, we are accustomed to three, four years later dealing with this when people come in. My orange regrew, but look what's wrong with all the oranges. Yeah. That's root stock. That was something and, else. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you have a tree like mine where I have a great crop of navel oranges and one whole branch. That has got these things on it. And it it. looks different. Looks different, visibly different. When that happens, trace that back to where it's coming from, very likely coming from below the graft. That's a rootstock. And you can keep it if you have a big enough tree and you don't mind having one of those, or you can cut it out. If you want a lemon, you should probably just plant a lemon. But these things happen. We had a freeze in 1990, freeze in 1998, freeze in 2007. We had a pretty hard, uh, close to a freeze in 2015. They'll happen again, would be my guess. I had a conversation with a customer who I said, this and thus and such is is not frost tolerant. And she said, well, that's not going to be happening anymore. And I thought, well, this isn't really how climate change works. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to be frost free in the Sacramento Valley, at least not in our lifetimes. But there will be years like the one we just went through. If you're listening to this a year after this, this is 2020. We just went through a winter that was very mild. We mm-hmm. had we had light enough frost this year that my hibiscus overwintered. And so I have a feeling we're going to be talking to a lot of people this spring and summer who think, oh, we can grow mandevillas. This we is can, the new normal We can grow now. hibiscus. We can grow this. And I said, well, you can. You're just going to be taking a risk because climate is averages, not absolutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have very little doubt that we'll have another hard freeze sometime in the next few years. And it'll take out most of those tropical plants. Okay. Here's the next question. <laughs> Um, I have a new kind of difficult area to plant. It's very, very sunny and hot. I just want to get some low water plants, colorful if possible, good for pollinators, etc. And I don't want to spend a lot of money. Uh, so designing for a small garden space, keeping it simple and keeping the costs down. Well, Any I did. suggestions? As it happens, I did exactly that on the west side of my house. We had. Uh, it turns out that's where the septic tank is. So I can't plant a shade tree there. Uh, because it'll damage the septic. So I can mm-hmm. only plant things that are reasonably safe, reasonably safe around them. No big woody trees, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, But it's the west side, and there's a deck over there, and so it's blazing hot on the hot afternoon. Mm-hmm. I shade those windows as best I can, but this was, you know, it's 105 degrees, that's where it is. Lovely to sit out there closer to dusk, but not exactly in the mid-afternoon. So what I did was I just started experimenting with lavenders, because that's one of my absolute go-to plants in the valley here for extreme heat and low water. Mm-hmm. 
I use all kinds of different ones. I probably have 20 different varieties of lavender on my property at this point because I think I like to try them all and see how mm-hmm. they do. Uh, the one that I really highly recommend, if you're thinking about this, is one a new one called Phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's very similar to Grosso and Provence, so it's a lot like those classic sachet and potpourri type lavenders. Mm-hmm. It's just more disease resistant and more cold tolerant, which is not an issue for us. But for those of you listening in colder USDA zones, Phenomenal is proving to be much more cold hardy. And Phenomenal. So, and it's, it's Phenomenal. It's darker. <laughs> pur- it's more purple than Grosso, but looks a lot like it and very fragrant. But I have others. I How did, tall does it get? It gets about three by three. At least that's been my okay. experience so far. And I alternated it with, in, in front of it, I planted some of the little tiny hide coat, which is a more silver leafed one. I also did, for a low cost, um, the six pack planted one, Lavender Lady. Lavender mm-hmm. Lady is a seed grown lavender strain. Most lavenders are cutting grown plants. You buy single plants at a time. And those are more expensive because they're cutting, there's more processing. And you can get them in four inch or quart pots. So that's one way to save money. But usually they're one gallon. Some people are even buying them in five gallon. Well, Lavender Lady, if your local uh, garden center happens to get them, is grown from seed. So you can mm-hmm. buy a six-pack of these plants. For so these are little two, two yeah, or four-inch little, little babies you can't imagine they're ever going to turn into shrubs. No, a six-pack is, is like six plants. These are the kinds of things you're buying your vegetables in mm-hmm. very commonly. And it's a very nice little one. Gets to about 12, 16 inches tall, a couple feet across, a little bit more of a sprawling habit. My experience with this one is it blooms June all the way into November. Wow. And it's a short stem bloom, so it's not a long bouquet type of lavender, but it's intensely fragrant. Mm-hmm. But try different ones. Wherever you're listening, there's probably a lavender that grows well for you as long as your drainage is good. That's the key thing in in rainier climates. Here, we just keep them dry. I water Mm -hmm. this whole area maybe once every seven to ten days. So uh, what about, I remember from the Arboretum that there were rosemaries. And there was yeah. one that was really tall. It was like head high. I have that really one. Tall. I have Tuscan blue, which gets five to six and feet. Is, would that be good in that yeah, area? Yeah. Rosemary, lavender, salvias are all good choices. And our climate status works very well in this situation. Some of the new salvia guaraniticas, if you want to look them up by the common name, it's anise-scented sages. You can grow those in very cold climates. So my focus in this garden area was things that could take heat, things that could take drought, would draw hummingbirds and butterflies, and I could mm-hmm. water once a week at the most. And mm-hmm. the ground cover I used was snow in summer. A little slow to get going, but now it's covering beautifully. So the main thing, though, is try things, and if something works, plant more of it. Mm-hmm. And go the smallest plants you can buy of that variety, and just experiment. I don't. I don't suggest. You know, I'm happy to sell you a cartload of plants that are all five gallon things in bloom. But if you want to keep the cost down, go with smaller ones. What's up right. on your, What's happening on your show? Oh, I have a guest. Uh, Sue Torgerson is going to be on. We're going to be talking about genealogy and the local clubs, and then the specific groups. You know, okay. if you've got a specific thing. Anyway, it'll be fun. You've so. been talking to the Davis. You've been talking. You're listening <laughs> to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here in Davis. California, 95.7 FM.